And so for this morning, we're going to be in a standalone text. We're going to be in the book of Titus and Paul's epistle to Titus. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Titus. We're going to take a look at a particular passage here. And just for some context and and background for this epistle written by the Apostle Paul, Titus was one of Paul's trusted companions and co-workers in in gospel ministry. And Paul had commissioned him to put the churches in Crete in order on the island of Crete. And this is referred to as a pastoral epistle, but Titus was more than just a pastor. He was an apostolic representative. He was representing the Apostle Paul and seeking to establish order in the churches on the island of Crete. And he was to accomplish this goal by carrying out three primary tasks. First, by appointing qualified leaders in every local church on the island. Second, by sharply rebuking false teachers. And third, by instructing the saints in godly behavior, which is consistent with the proper expression of sound doctrine. And our passage this morning is going to be in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And it's found in the context of Paul's guidance for Titus concerning that third task. And so starting in in chapter 2, Paul describes in verses 1 to 10 what godliness looks like for Christian men and women, young and old, and even for those who are slaves. He gives them instructions in Godliness. Then Paul goes on to explain in verses 11 to 14 why godliness ought to and indeed will be the distinguishing mark of people who have truly been saved by the grace of God. And that's because the grace of God works in those upon whom it has been poured out. The grace of God, his unearned and undeserved favor, that's what grace is, well, God's grace is effective. It's effective. Now, let's read this passage that focuses on the the power and results of God's saving grace in the lives of his people. We're going to start with verse 1 to get the flow of what he is writing and for context as we build up to verses 11 to 14. But starting in verse 1, let's read this together. Paul writes to Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And now we come to our passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I don't know if you noticed this, but that was just one long sentence. 
verses 11 to 14, one long, robust sentence dished out by the Apostle Paul. And after giving instructions for the church on godly living in verses 1 through 10, well, he then explains that the grace of God is what enables us to practice such things. All the things we read in verses 1 through 10. And then Paul makes the point, it's the grace of God that enables you to live this out. And in this passage, we see the gift of grace in verse 11. And we see the, the guidance of grace in verses 12 to 13. And we see the goal of grace in, in verse 14. So I said to a, a brother this morning, I said, we're going to take a deep dive into grace in this passage. In verse 11, Paul speaks of the gift of grace, saying that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The gift of grace is salvation. Salvation from the enslaving power of sin. Salvation from the eternal condemnation that we deserve and death that our sins against God have earned us. In other words, we are freed from the power of sin and we are forgiven of our sins by the grace of God. The gift of grace is salvation. And if salvation were up to us, though, we would fail. And actually, it would be more accurate to say that if salvation were up to us, it would be dead on arrival. If it depended on us. One Bible commentator says this. He says, God's grace toward us is based solely on his love and our total inability to meet God's standards. God's grace is a gift we do not deserve and cannot earn. Without God's grace, there can be no salvation since grace is foundational to salvation. Now notice that Paul says that the grace of God has appeared in verse 11. It has appeared. And what Paul's alluding to here is to the coming of the Son of God into the world in the flesh as the promised Christ to proclaim the gospel and make atonement for the sins of his people. He died for our sins and rose again, and he graciously gives the gift of forgiveness and everlasting life to all who believe and trust in him alone for salvation. In other words, the grace of God showed itself in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, we, we see this said of Christ. He's referred to as the, the Word of God. And the Word became flesh, John says, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For the, uh, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Paul said in 2 Timothy, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality and light through the gospel. So Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, you could say is the face of grace. He is the embodiment of God's grace. And those who receive him in faith as he truly is are those who have received God's saving grace. And the appearing of Christ at his first coming was the appearing of God's saving grace that is bringing salvation for all people. And when Paul says all people here, he does not mean all individual persons in the human race. It's not teaching universalism. He, rather, he's referring to all kinds of people. In verses 1 through 10, the passage we just read, right before this one, Paul had just addressed different groups of people in the church. And he emphasized the importance 
of godly living for each of them, both men and women, young as well as the old, and even slaves. A diverse group, and Paul addresses slaves in verses 9 and 10. And then by stating in verse 11, the truth that God's grace brings salvation to all people, what Paul was doing was providing an encouraging reminder for Titus to give to them, especially to those who were slaves. They had all received the same grace of God. So what we read in verses 1 through 10, all those groups of people that were being addressed and how to walk in godliness, he then talks about the fact that they had all received the same grace of God. It has appeared, bringing salvation to all. They, in other words, were equally heirs of salvation by the grace of God. And in light of this, they had all been equally called to walk in godliness. You have all received the same portion. You have all been saved by God's grace, and he has called you to a holy calling. And by God's grace, you will do it. So in the context of the church, there are no superior and inferior groups. All are one in Christ. The same is true of every one of you who have come to personally believe the gospel for yourself and have repented of your sins and are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The fact that we are saved by God's grace apart from our works leaves us absolutely no room for boasting, but all the room in the world for rejoicing. Now, having emphasized the gift of grace in verse 11, Paul then goes on to describe the guidance of grace in verses 12 to 13. He says this from verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, doing what? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the working of God's grace is not limited to the time of our conversion. It indeed begins there. And usually when we think of the grace of God, we think of the saving grace of God. We're saved by grace. We're thinking of conversion. But it begins there with God graciously giving us spiritual life and a heart to believe the gospel so that we are counted as righteous through faith in Jesus and we're reconciled to God, that is salvation by God's grace. But then beginning in verse 12, what do we see? Paul describes the active work of grace in the lives of sinners who have been born again. And what does he call that active work? Training. Training. If you are in Christ, then you are in training. From the time God saved you by his grace, apart from your works, God's grace has been at work in you. And it is causing you to work. To get to work to grow in godliness. Paul said in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul acknowledged his own grace training in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said, now this is the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Talking about the other, the other apostles. He got the work. He labored for the Lord. And we see that. We see the witness of that, the testimony of that through the New Testament. So he says, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So, knowing he was a sinner saved by grace, and by God's grace, he was an apostle. But then that motivated him to get to work, 
to serve the Lord. And even that hard labor and work, and even work that surpassed the work other people were doing, he knew that it's only by God's grace that I am doing that. It gives glory to God. So having received salvation by grace, we are, we're now in the process of being trained by grace, if you're truly in Christ. In other words, having been justified, counted as righteous through faith, and that by God's grace, we are now being sanctified, conformed to his likeness, by God's grace. Now let's take a moment to to get a more concrete idea of what exactly is involved in the process of our training by grace. I mean, that sounds good. You're like, okay, so the grace of God is active. It's training me. I'm like, hope it's working. It's just doing its work. I guess it's working. But there are means employed. There's a method that God's grace uses. Here's maybe a, a way to succinctly state it. We know God has many means by which he is changing us, sanctifying us. But here's grace's training method. It is Holy Spirit-empowered understanding and application of the scriptures. That's the training method. And again, if we, uh, if we think of anything else, everything that God is doing to sanctify us, it comes down to that, really. It is the Holy Spirit empowering us in understanding and applying the scriptures. It's both, right? Study scriptures, understand more, but if you're not applying, you are not being sanctified. And if you're seeking to understand the scriptures and apply in your own effort, not really recognizing your absolute dependency on the the power of the Spirit, you're not really going to be sanctified as much as you want. So the, the, the tried and true training method of God's grace Holy Spirit-empowered understanding and application of the scriptures. Remember, Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. God points the means. The Spirit is the agent of our sanctification. And the scriptures are the instrument of our sanctification. You can't separate the two. The Holy Spirit is not working in your life apart from the scriptures. And the scriptures are not working in your life apart from the Spirit's enablement, right? God, the Holy Spirit, utilizes the scriptures and helps us to understand, apply them so that we are being sanctified. And this is consistent with the testimony of scripture concerning the new birth. The reality of the salvation that God brings to those who believe and trust in Christ. New covenant promise in Ezekiel 36. Of course, something that is applied to all who have faith in Jesus the Messiah. This spiritual blessing. This is the reality of what God has done in salvation and causing someone to be born again. God made this promise, and I will give you a new heart. Hey, what was wrong with your old one? It's all about me, have no interest in God, love my sin, hardened. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, a new disposition. I'm going to change that, you know, the bent towards sin in your life and bend it towards my will now. A new heart, a new spirit. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and what? Cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. That's what the new birth is. So the spirit is at work. The spirit is the agent of our sanctification. The scriptures are the instrument of our sanctification. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. You're probably familiar with it. Maybe you've memorized it. But it's so helpful to never forget this. Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Spirit is the agent. The Scriptures are the instrument. And we could add, we should also add this. We have one more. 
the church. You could say the church is the, the hub of our sanctification. So we have the spirit, we have the scriptures, and we have the saints. See what I did there? Three S's. Easy to remember. The spirit, the scriptures, and the saints. It's not enough for us to just have the spirit in our Bible and be isolated individuals. That's why it's important to add this. It's not just me and Jesus in my Bible over here in a corner. I'm going to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and in godliness. We need the fellowship of the saints. We need the church. And of course, the, the ministry of the church all kind of comes back to what? The ministry of what? The word. Spirit-empowered ministry of the word. So that's why that training method stands. But just in case we were thinking of this Lone Ranger Christianity, we have to be reminded, no, the hub of our sanctification. We will grow in the context of fellowship with the church. Hebrews 3.13 says this, we're to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The Christian in isolation is susceptible to being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need the fellowship of the saints. And then, of course, one you also might be very familiar with. And let us consider, later in Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So with encouragement from the church of God, education from the word of God, and empowerment from the Spirit of God, we are being trained by the grace of God. That's God's grace at work. That is the means. We are being instructed. We are being guided by God's grace to do, well, what exactly? Paul says in verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions is, is, to, is to reject and disown them, to cast them off. This is what genuine repentance unto salvation is. It is saving repentance. It is first to recognize with a, a sorrowful heart the wickedness of your own sins and rebellion against God. And then, with a moral clarity and determination given by the grace of God, to then despise and disown and discard those ways. That's what genuine repentance is. Have you ever come to that point, a genuinely sorrowful heart, sorrowful heart before God over the and wickedness of your own sin? really sensing the wickedness of your own sin. It's rebellion against God. God has given you life and breath and everything. And then have you truly seen your sin as something that is to be despised, disowned, discarded, to be cast off? Because that's what, that's what repentance unto salvation is. Such repentance that moment, it occurs at the moment of salvation, the moment of your conversion. True conversion is preceded or uh, happens with genuine repentance. And this is by God's grace when you come to have saving faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's at this moment that you as a hardened sinner on the path leading to destruction, were made a child of God and turned onto the path leading to life. This isn't about what you did for yourself. This is about what God did to you and in you. Remember that passage in Ezekiel. New heart, new spirit, my spirit. You are changed, you are transformed. And this is the response, repentance and faith unto salvation. You are now identified at that point in conversion. You're identified as one who has renounced ungodliness and worldly passions 
And the grace of God then trains you to reflect that reality in the way you deal with your sin in your daily Christian life. When we sin, we then repent. Why? Because grace trains us not to allow sin to once again rule over us. This is what the Christian life, the true Christian life looks like and involves. You will still sin. We're not, we, we haven't arrived at perfection. That's in glory. We're a work in progress. But when we sin, God will lead us to repentance. Grace will train us to not allow sin to once again rule over us and be our master. We have been set free from his power. And when it comes to temptation to sin, grace trains us to resist it, to fight it, to flee from it, and to avoid it. And when it comes to having sinful thoughts and desires, grace trains us to put them to death and put them off. Despise, disown, and discard such things. Why? For we are those who, by God's grace, have renounced ungodliness and worldly passions. And in that passage, when it says that the grace of God has appeared, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Well, the grammar would be more accurate to say, having renounced ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age. But it is still appropriate to have it say to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions because you do that at the moment of your conversion and it's also a present reality in your life. Casting off that which is sinful in the eyes of God and displeasing to him. Ungodliness and worldly passions. It is a life of repentance. You come to repentance, saving faith in Christ and then you enter into a life of repenting of sin, fleeing from sin, being at war with sin. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, he says, this is a more expanded exhortation on this. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And again, speaking to the one who has been saved by God's grace, because now by the Spirit of God, you can. You're being trained by grace to do so. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity. Passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put these things to death. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Those ways, those sins that we are to be putting to death, those earthly things that are still in us because we still have the presence of sin in us, that we are to put to death, it characterized that old self, who you once were. And anytime you see uh, an indication or something rising up within you that reminds you of that old person you used to be, that is to be put to death. You have put on the new self by God's grace, and you are being renewed in knowledge after his image. So God's grace trains us in the way we should go, in the way that is pleasing in the sight of God. And Paul succinctly describes that way for the saints in verse 12 as... He sums it up, he says it very succinctly, it's what? Living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Living a self-controlled life in a self-controlled manner refers to the exercising of self-discipline, moderation, and caution. That's what it looks like. Living in an upright manner refers to being honest, fair, merciful, and good towards others. And living in a godly manner refers to fearing God and thus being devoted to obeying his commandments out of love for him. This is not the way we once lived. That did not describe your life 
before God by his grace saved you if you are in Christ. And according to what Paul says later in chapter 3, if you turn right over to chapter 3, you'll see in verse 3 of Titus, he says, before God mercifully saved us, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But what happened? Divine grace happened. Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Regeneration and renewal. And now God by his grace is training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. These three qualities indicate that our training by God's grace is inward, it is outward, and it's upward. We're being guided in our personal conduct. We're being guided in our dealings with others. We're being guided in our walk with God. It's a reminder that salvation in the Christian life is not compartmentalized. Everything is impacted by the transforming power of God's saving grace, if you have truly received it. Your whole life is impacted. Because the grace of God works. That being said, if there is no transformation in your life, if you are a professing Christian, but there's no transformation in your life, if there's no indication that you have actually renounced ungodliness and worldly passions and have changed from your original course to begin living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life, well, then you're not a genuine Christian. And you're not genuinely saved. To believe otherwise, to say, well, no, I, I believe in Jesus. I said a prayer. I walked an aisle, raised my hand at an evangelistic rally. Um, but if there's no transformation that we just read, that kind of transformation, then you're not genuinely saved. And to believe that you are is to wrongly reduce God's grace to something that gets you to make a profession of faith and nothing more. Is that what God's grace is? Sometimes it just gets you to say, I trust Jesus, but does nothing else to your life. Nothing else to your heart. That would be a denial of the plain teaching of this passage and others we've considered so far. It would be a denial of the truth that God sanctifies those whom he saves. If there's no change, if there's no transformation, there is no salvation in that person's life. Not yet. Paul says that grace-induced movement in the life of the Christian towards self-controlled, upright, and godly living, he says it takes place here and now. It's not, well, eventually, you know, when, when I get to heaven, then I'll be, you know, I'll be totally sanctified. But here and now, yeah, you know, sin. Well, no, he says this change happens here and now. He says what? In the present age. In the present age. Paul elsewhere called the present age an evil age. Galatians 1.4. He says that we are not to be conformed to this age age. Romans 12.2. It is the present time of the world's raging rebellion against God until the kingdom of God comes. That's the time in which we live. It's the present time of increasing lawlessness as people continue to live for the fleeting pleasures of sin and have no fear of God before their eyes. And we all were such people, weren't we? But what, by the grace of God, 
we have been saved. And by his grace, we are being sanctified, changed. How long? Well, as long as we are waiting for the time of our Lord's return. Verse 13. Verse 13. You see that? Waiting. The word translated as waiting at the beginning of this verse means more specifically to look forward to. Paul reminds us that that we are looking forward to and confidently expecting the return of Christ, which he refers to as our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the grace of God appeared at the first coming of Christ, but then the glory of God is going to appear at the second coming of Christ. So we look back on the the, the appearing of his grace and the impact of his grace in saving us and what Christ accomplished at his first coming. And having been saved, we are now looking ahead to his return and his second appearing in glory. This is a hopeful expectation of his return, and that's what motivates us to live in the way that honors and pleases him here and now and to persevere in doing so. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he says, And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion when at the day of Jesus Christ. You see how active God is in not only saving the sinner, but also transforming them to helping us to live out the Christian life. And we are reassured over and over again, he will see it through. Hope in the return of Christ in glory is the primary motivator in our sanctification by grace. That is why we often see exhortations to holy living in the scriptures joined with reminders of what's to come when Christ returns. Consider what Paul says in Colossians 1, the opening of or I'm sorry, in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So you've been saved. You've been born again. You've been raised with Christ, spiritually made alive. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And he goes on to give more and more expectations of how you are to live now. But it's giving the sight of Christ's coming glory and the expectation of his return. He is your life. Your hope is in him. You will be glorified in him. Look ahead to him as your motivation to live for him here and now. And consider what John says in 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Notice that there's a connection between the hope that you are setting uh, your sights on Christ and his return and your Activity and growing in your sanctification, purifying yourself, pursuing holiness. If there's a lack of growth and holiness in your life, it's probably because your eyes are so fixed on this world, the things of this world, and they're not fixed on the Lord and his coming glory and kingdom. Our hope in Christ is the primary motivator for our sanctification. And now we come to verse 14 in the text, where where Paul turns our attention from the glory of Christ at his second coming to the sacrifice of Christ at his first coming. And he's, he's already pointed us to the gift of God's grace towards us in verse 11, and the guidance of God's grace in us in verses 12 to 13. But now in verse 14, well, he explains why the Lord Jesus went to the cross and died for us. And it's in this that we see, really, 
what the goal of God's grace for us is. Why did God pour out his grace on you? Paul says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ went to the cross for us in order to bear in our place the wrath of God that we deserve for our sins. He died on the cross and rose again to set us free from the penalty and power of sin and thus to redeem us, to purchase us out of slavery to sin, to redeem us from all lawlessness, all forms of lawlessness. However, this Deliverance, this liberation from slavery to sin was not so that we would just be free for freedom's sake. Rather, it was so that we would belong to Christ. His aim was to purify, notice what is said, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So the goal of God's grace for us and the reason we have received it is that we would be set apart for Christ as his chosen people. People for his own possession, literally just it's his chosen people, his special people who belong to him. And Paul describes Christ's chosen people as those who are zealous for good works. That is, being eager to do good works. Paul had told Titus in in chapter 2, verse 7, to be a model of good works. And two times in in chapter 3 in this epistle, he stresses the priority of being devoted to good works. And the second time is at the very end of this letter. He he says to Titus, right before he signs off, in verse 14, you see it right at the end there, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Do you know what good works are? Do you have a list in your mind? It's a, it's a pretty broad category. There's one passage of, of Scripture that actually kind of gets a pretty specific, because I think you know what a good work is. It's good in the sight of God. It's good according to his standard. Walk in these things. Devote yourself to these things. Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we actually get a little glimpse of some examples of good works. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10. And this is... The context of this is it's one of the qualifications. He's giving one of the qualifications for a widow, a woman who's a widow, to be financially supported by the church. She's got to be at least 60 years of age, have no surviving family to help take care of her. The church then will consider providing support for her. But he says if she has a rep- had a reputation for good works. And here's what he, he lists out an example of these. But listen to this. So you heard good works and here's what Paul is out for uh, an elderly woman or an older woman who's a widow, but, but if she was known for good works, had a reputation for them, what does she do? If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints. You wash anybody's feet lately? But what do we mean by that, right? Humble service, sacrificial service, no task is too low. You're not, you're not above it, right? Willing to, to stoop down and, to, and serve the saints. Has cared for the afflicted. Mercy, compassion. And has devoted herself to every good work. It's, 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 she's known for this. But th- this helps us see that good works are really, they're, they're kind and noble acts done for the good of others. So again, we can have... Uh, 
godly qualities that we pursue, virtues that we are pursuing, growing in patience, uh, growing in our, our gentleness, uh, but really good works are, are uh, useful, beneficial things that we are doing for the good of others and that are pleasing in the sight of God. It's getting outside of ourselves and serving others and really obeying his commands for us. But the goal of God's grace for us is that we would be set apart for Christ unto good works. That's to be our business as Christians. We are his people. We are his possession. And what pleases him, what honors him, is that we devote ourselves to good works. Paul said, as we heard in the scripture reading in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Even your faith, not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not, as a, not a result of works, so that no one may boast your salvations by grace. And then in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's a new birth, made alive, united with him, a new creation in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why did God save you? Why did he pour out his grace on you? That was the goal he had in mind, is the goal he has in mind, and he's going to bring that about in your life. But you are, by God's grace, saved, by God's grace being sanctified, and by God's grace are set apart as belonging to Christ himself, and he has called you to be devoted to good works. And so when we think of grace and works, here's what we can say. We are saved through faith, apart from our works, by God's grace that powerfully works so that we walk in good works. We get to work having been saved apart from works. And all of this is by God's grace. And to wrap up this deep dive into thinking about the grace of God and have a right understanding of its impact in our lives as Christians. One enduring testimony concerning the transforming power of God's amazing grace. Oh, just gave it away. Is found in John Newton's hymn. I want to read these lyrics because you have a man that had a wretched life. Wait, kind of like us, right? Wretched life. And yet God saved this man and transformed him so that he was truly a new creation in Christ. But listen, a changed man, and this is a song that he writes in praise to God about the grace of God he has experienced in the past, in the present, and on into the future. He is looking at it, God's saving grace. He says, amazing grace, how sweet this sound. And I know you know this song. We're all going to sing it right now. Let's, I'll read it, but... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. If you've been saved by God's grace, all of this should ring true for you personally. Preach it, John Newton. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. The grace of God is amazing. 
The grace of God is powerful. It is by grace we are saved. It is by grace God is changing us. If we are in Christ, we have that hope. We have that encouragement. And every commandment and exhortation you read in Scripture, understand that God supplies you with his grace to do these things. And he is growing you. He's transforming you, conforming you to the likeness of Christ. He will get you there. And your end is what? Glory. Because he will bring it to completion. So you will not fail. You will not be cast off. You are called to give yourself to these things. Pursue Christ. Devote yourself to good works for his glory and honor. And God will see his good work that he's begun in you to completion. Our motivation and obedience in the Christian life is the hope we have in Christ. And it's a reliance on the continuing grace of God in us. We don't all of a sudden become those who can start in our own willpower. I'm going to be more godly today. I'm going to do it because I've got so much strength in me to do it. No, we, by God's grace, are being transformed by the renewal of our mind, conformed to the likeness of his beloved son. Never forget the power of grace towards you who believe. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are so grateful that it is by your grace that we are saved. We know apart from your grace, we, we would be lost, we would be in darkness, we would be hardened in our sinful rebellion. But by your grace, according to your mercy, apart from our works, you, you intervened in our lives, you, you made us new. You gave us life, you gave us eyes to see and behold your son as he truly is, Lord and Savior, the one for whom all things were made, the one who is coming to return and judge the world in right, righteousness and reign and establish your kingdom on this earth. And he's also the good shepherd who has laid down his life to, to purchase a people for himself by paying for their sins, taking the punishment they deserve upon himself. He's paid that in full so that we might mercifully, and by your grace, be counted as righteous through our faith in him. And even that is a gift from you. God, help us to never forget the working of your grace in our lives for us personally but also for one another that we might be encouraged by that and be an encouragement to others as we seek to spur each other on to love and good works for your glory keep us from adopting the mindset that we're doing this in our own strength guard us from any any form of of legalism or anything like that help us always see ourselves as works in progress being sanctified by your grace that's in work at work in us, Lord. And we pray also that our, our gospel would be preached with clarity as we share it, as we proclaim it, as we witness to others, that it is, it is, there is nothing they can do to be right with you. It is solely by your grace that they can be saved, and that is a gift you give to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ, your Son, for salvation. We pray that you would be exalted in our lives by our active acknowledgement of our absolute dependence uh, upon you for all things, the power of your spirit, the sufficiency of your word that's living and active uh, to make us more and more like Jesus, your son, for your glory, for our good and for our joy. Um, and all these things we pray that you would be pleased, that you would be praised. And we ask that you would be pleased now as we, we turn our, our, our thoughts to you in, in, in song and uh, give you the glory and give you the praise and give thanksgiving to you and set our sights on the glory that is to come. Amen.